All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. I just want to, I want to start out this morning by saying um, thanks to Daniel for for leading us in worship today. Uh, It's the first time that Daniel has uh, led us in worship, and thanks to Andrew for for making disciples. Um, We talk a lot about making disciples and apprenticing, and that's just a little step in the right direction of saying, hey, God hasn't called me in his kingdom to do everything. And so I'm going to employ a few others as apprentices, whether that's Michael and Cadence. Um, A 13-year-old can help to lead worship, just like she did last week. Are you 13? That was awesome last week. So thanks for using your gifts. And Daniel, we appreciate you and and all our musicians who um, just serve um, so selflessly. We're thankful for all of you guys. When you think about God, what words come to mind? When you think about God, you just close your eyes for a minute. When you think about God, what, what word, what picture, what emotions come to mind? All right, now look at me. I'm going to do something and ask you to be, this is, I'm going to ask you, it's kind of a, it's a very personal question, right? And so, I want to ask you to turn to someone who's near you, if you're up for this, And share with them, when you think about God, what's a word that came to your mind? Now, if you're new here, and if you're like, this is weird, they're having a church gathering, there's a pandemic, and they're having a church gathering, just just go get some coffee, or tell people you're scared of the coronavirus, you don't want to talk with them. But if you're up for it, if you're up for it, turn to someone near you and share with them what word came to mind when you thought about God. Go. All right, I'm curious. I don't want to get too personal. I know I'm asking you to be super open. And so uh, maybe if there's a couple of brave souls who could share... What came to mind, what word, thought, emotion, when you think about God? What did you hear? Holy, loving, big, strong, all-knowing, transubstantiation. I'm curious, did anyone hear anything negative? I would dare say, then you weren't really being honest. When I think about God, and maybe I'm a weirdo, but when I think about God, when I'm really honest with myself, I have this sense that God is disappointing. That in some way, that his arms are crossed, that his head is shaking, that he's just kind of waiting for me to get it together. And maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. But if you have any inclination of that in your heart and in your soul. Now here's the deal. I know that's not who God is. Because I I believe this book. I believe these are God's words. 
I believe this is the gospel called good news. And it says that God isn't any of those things. But when I'm really open, there's a part of me that struggles to know who God is and how He views me. In the very first study of the Gospel of John, we said, what you think about God is what? The most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because He's the most important being in all the world. Now, if you're at all like me, if you share even a small amount of my struggle, then I think you're going to be hugely encouraged today as we study this passage. In John 2, Jesus is performing His first miracle. John refers to it as a sign. Meaning that Jesus' miracle is meant to point us to a deeper reality. And so we're going to see seven signs throughout the book of John. And in each of these signs, we're going to see Jesus pointing us to a deeper reality about His kingdom. So spoiler alert, in the story today, Jesus is going to turn water into wine. And people are going to go, that doesn't happen in our kingdom. And Jesus says, welcome to my kingdom. Jesus is going to show us how incredible His kingdom is. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the rule and reign of Christ. Which is already not yet. Jesus has come, and He's given us the opportunity to believe in Him. And so we are already stepping into His kingdom as followers of Jesus. But that kingdom is not yet completed because He said He's returning again. And so in this miracle, Jesus is illustrating the joy that comes through believing in Him. The joy that we find in believing in Jesus. And we're always going back and forth in our belief. Even followers of Jesus. I'm not saying that we're giving up on God. Or that we're not seeing Jesus as the Savior of the world. But for each of us. I mean, I've been a follower of Jesus For almost 40 years. 37 years I've followed Jesus. And I still struggle. Since a little kid. Since I was 6 years old. And I still struggle in my belief at times. Does Jesus really love me? Is Jesus really for me? Does God look at me and say. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. This passage of Scripture illustrates the joy that comes through believing in Jesus. And we're all constantly back and forth. And so here's my hope. My hope today is that for believers, that we will be able to see what aspects of our life in which we are not believing in Jesus. Because there's always a part of us that's struggling with our belief. I'm not saying that we're falling from grace. That's not at all what I'm saying. But we can look at areas of our life in which we lack joy. And I believe those areas are indicators of where we aren't pursuing Jesus. And then for those of you who don't believe, the whole point of this gospel, John was Jesus' best friend. Jesus called him the beloved. Of everybody on earth, this is Jesus' best friend. And John's late in life, everybody else has died. Uh, All the other eyewitnesses are almost passed away. It's over 50 years since Jesus has lived. And John writes this gospel in order that we would know what his best friend is like. 
90% of the material that we find in this gospel comes only from John. And his whole point, he says in John 20, 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life. And might I add joy in Him. So let's, let's look. The big idea for today is this. Jesus is joy and can transform life into something better. I don't have a slide for you, so I'm going to repeat that a couple of times. Jesus is joy and can transform life into something better. Now, I didn't say Jesus points us to joy or Jesus shows us joy. Jesus is joy. Jesus is joy and can transform life into something better. And that's news that's worth hearing for us. Because if we're honest with ourselves, even as followers of Jesus, some people have said that we're on a happiness quest. And I think that's true for most individuals, that we're on a happiness quest. And we're looking for happiness uh, in a thousand different ways and in a hundred different places. I mean, we are all about happiness. And I believe the Holy Spirit can help us to diagnose and discern where we lack belief in the gospel by examining our lives and discovering where we lack joy. Today's message is entitled, The Joy of Jesus. So let's look uh, at the joy of Jesus. And first we see a picture of the kingdom in this story. Look at verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we start out and John the writer points out on the third day. It's actually the seventh day in this week that John has been giving us, but it's the third day of the wedding. And John is giving us this first week in Jesus' ministry, and he's, in essence, foreshadowing a new creation that's being established, a new way of relating to God in which we would know God not through the law or by keeping the law, but that we would know God through relationship. And now John says it's the third day, as if to foreshadow Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. On the third day, resulting in a new covenant, a new way of relating to God through Jesus. So it's on the third day, and he says there's a wedding at Cana. Now, Cana was about eight or nine miles north of Nazareth. Uh, Wasn't that far away. We're assuming this is probably a friend of Jesus, Um, because they're really close in proximity. Um, Jerome was a Catholic priest in the 4th century. He said on a clear day that from Nazareth that you could see Cana of Galilee. And so probably friends of Jesus, they're at a wedding. A Jewish wedding would take all week long. And oftentimes the wedding itself would be a full day. But then for seven days they would enjoy dinners every night. And so big deal, long week. So it's on the third day, it's a wedding at Cana, and the mother of Jesus was there. Isn't that interesting? Not Mary, but the mother of Jesus is the way in which Mary is introduced. We see that the writer is beginning to separate Jesus and his mom, who I assume up to this point had been very close. And Jesus is invited with his disciples. He's invited with his disciples. Now, I I don't want to run past this. This This is a minor point. And it's not the point of this passage of Scripture. It's not the meaning. But I do want to point out here that Jesus is 30 years old. He's 30. And up until this point, he has spent the working years of his adult life as a simple carpenter. Possibly a stonemason. Possibly a wood carpenter. 
Um, his father Joseph has been gone for a while. We don't know how long. And most likely Jesus has been helping to provide for his mom and for his siblings. And so those of you who may come from a tradition that says that Mary was a perpetual virgin, I'm sorry, there's, there's nothing within the Bible that would indicate that. In fact, the exact opposite. That Jesus has other siblings and that they're, they're in his life. And it seems up until this point, Jesus, the Savior of the world, the God of all mankind, has been filling his days all of his working days as an adult male to the age of 30, just providing, just being a good human being, just caring for those who are around him. Now, you also need to know that in this day and time and in this context, the average age for a male who was going to get married was about 18 to 24. They got married pretty young. The average age for a female, they would marry as early as 13 to 14. So where does that put Jesus? Jesus is this 30-year-old single guy showing up to the wedding. Jesus has likely seen many of his friends get married. In fact, this is the marriage ceremony of a family friend. He and his mom are there. And here's what I want to point out. For those of you who are in the room who are single, Jesus knows what it's like to be single. Jesus knows what it's like to experience loneliness. Married couples know what it's like to experience loneliness too, by the way. Being married doesn't take loneliness away from you. Sometimes it makes it worse. But Jesus was an older single who never married. We all know that, but I just want to point it out. I'll say it again. Jesus was an older single who never married, and it didn't make him weird. In fact, he had an incredible relationship with his Heavenly Father, particularly because he was single. If you look at his life, you'll see that once ministry started, he struggled to find time to spend with the Father. He would have to get away from his disciples and go and hide. No one would be able to find him. Why? Because he struggled to find time to be in prayer because he was so busy in ministry. This became really um, just... I, I got married when we were young. I was 22 and um, right out of college. But this became really clear to me when um, my best friend at the time, I planted a church with him in Nashville, and he was single when we went there to plant together. We were the same age, and my buddy Mike, he, he told me about how there would be times, and I didn't see this because he dated, like he was on staff with me at, at a big church, and he was kind of known for dating a lot of people, and um I didn't think of him as someone who would be lonely. And he, he told me, he said, that there would be times in my life, he said, well, I would just walk out and I would look up at the stars and I would just say, God, what are you doing? God, I'm so lonely. I desire to be in a relationship with someone. What are you doing, God? And it became clear to me, and it, because he was someone who was so personal to me, of how discouraging that can be. If you're single and you're here today, I just want to say that Jesus is with you. And he understands and he can be trusted. And I don't want anybody to laugh when I say this. Okay? You aren't weird if you're single. We snicker at that and we shouldn't. You aren't weird if you're single. What you are is loved. 
And you are extremely valuable. In fact, Paul would say that you're more valuable to the kingdom than a married couple because you're less distracted. And Paul would say, go on and be single like I am if you can. And he, he sees singleness as a gift. And so should we. So I just want to point that out. That if you're here and you're single, you're loved and you're valuable. Secondly, in this passage, so we see here that Jesus is giving us a picture of the kingdom. But secondly, we see the freedom that comes in authority. The freedom that comes in being under authority. Look at verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we're going to address wine in this section, or alcohol, but before we get there, I want to point out that joy is found in being under the Father's authority. Joy is found in being under the Father's authority. Scripture says, when the wine ran out. Typically, a Jewish wedding would have dinners every night of the week for seven days. The guests would help to provide the wine. And it would be an incredible embarrassment, an incredible humiliation to run out of wine. And how Mary was connected in this story, we really don't know. There's a lot of different theories. But my theory is that when there's a problem at a wedding, it's everybody's problem, right? Like everybody's like all hands on deck. We've got to get this fixed. And so Mary comes to Jesus. Now, guys, this is not a recipe or a reply for you to give to your wife on Saturday afternoon when you're sitting in your recliner with your feet up and a cold one in your hand and she mentions the honeydew list that she had for you and you quote Jesus and say, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay, That is not at all what was taking place here. This was a term of endearment. The, the English translation is very poor. I mean, it's accurate, but it doesn't relate well it's the same term that Jesus uses from the cross. So that helps. When he says, John, behold your mother, 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 behold your son. Same term of endearment here. But be clear about it. Jesus is addressing his mom as a woman, not as mom. He's instructing his mom not to attempt to tell him what to do because he's now under the instruction of his father in heaven. And he says, he says that by saying, my hour has not yet come. We want, what hour is he speaking of? That moment where he will step into his ministry, and as he steps into ministry, he will step toward the cross, beginning at that moment as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. That's what Jesus is referring to here. And Jesus was under God's authority. In John 5, verse 19 we see where John writes, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. Now, I want to stop for just a minute right there. Being under authority. Most of us, that's the last thing in the world we think we want. But being, we find incredible freedom and incredible joy when we are able to come under the authority of God. The picture here is that Jesus has been operating on a schedule, and it's the Father's will. It's the Father's schedule, not His own. How often do we find ourselves in places in which we were never meant to be in our lives because we have made decisions and we are operating on schedules that God never intended? 
I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'll just say that this is something that I have realized in my own life that I struggle with a lot. That I consistently take on more than God has called me to take on. And and when that happens, it, it just kills our joy. It leaves us at a place in which we're stressed, in which we're anxious or even moving toward panic attacks. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And for, for me, it's, it's a real reality. Because I'm engaged in some things that are really close to my heart. And whenever we're engaged with something that we really care dearly about, um, something that really matters, and when there's too much of it to go around, we find ourselves getting stressed. And uh, I've struggled with this for a lot of my life. Uh, being overly responsible. Uh, you say, in what way? It can happen in any way. It can happen from a counseling meeting in which I walk away carrying your burdens and your problems as if I could solve them and as if I could bring some kind of change to your life. It happens on a Sunday morning when I see a guest and I try to start thinking about ways in my mind in which I could make them feel comfortable. I mean, it happens over and over again. And I've told the elders that I need their help. And they've been very kind to come around and say, we're a plurality of elders. And uh, that's not just a plurality of elders in authority, but also in responsibility. So let us take some things and be responsible for them that you are no longer responsible for. Andrew, I've said, Andrew, I need you to lead the deacons. And I need you to tell me to stop getting involved with the deacons. And my wife reminded me just this last week, hey, why are you going to go run nine miles? Why can't you just go run five? And I didn't run at all. (laughs) But I need help. And maybe you're like me, and you need help too. So you can pray for me. Jesus found great freedom in coming under the authority of his Father. Thirdly, we see the results of obedience. Third, we see the results of obedience, beginning in verse 5. The mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. What a great line. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants had drawn the water, who had drawn the water, knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The passage that we're studying, I realize, is highly controversial amongst many people because it talks about alcohol. It, it's, it impacts the way in which we view God in a dramatic fashion. And so it's really important that we understand accurately what's taking place here. Now surely this passage isn't meant to build a theology on drinking. This is not the passage to go to to build a theology on is it right to drink alcohol or is it wrong? Now in some countries this is like laughable. People would say, why is this even a subject? Like we all agree. It's all 
we're all, it's wrong. It's just completely wrong. Or in other countries, they would say, why are we even talking about this? What's the big deal? It's just fine. But in where we are, in our context, this is a big deal. But know that this is not Jesus' purpose. Also know it would be short-sighted to decide what you think the Bible teaches about alcohol without looking at this passage. And, and at least examining it and considering it. And so I want to be real quick to talk about alcohol very, in a very brief way. If you have questions, I'd love to engage with you more on those questions because I know that this is, um, this is a subject that there are very strong feelings around. But I also want to point out that that's not the main meaning for this passage. That's not where Jesus is pointing us, okay? Now, whenever you look at a tough subject in Scripture... And there's a lot of tough subjects these days. Like, I could just ask, and you could start throwing them out, whether you said the death penalty or homosexuality, or there's all these, these subjects that we would put under a biblical ethics in which we would begin to ask questions. Whenever you do that, you need to understand that you come to the Scriptures with all types of filters. And you're taking your filter and... You're, you're taking your filter and you're laying your filter on top of the scriptures and then you're reading the scriptures through your filter. And if you think you don't have a filter, the only way not to have a filter would be if you were an alien who was just dropped on planet earth and you would still have a filter because you're an alien. So we all have filters. We all have, maybe a better way to say it is lenses through which we look at the scriptures. And those lenses are made up of everything from a western context so when it talks about poverty in the scriptures, I don't know that there's hardly anyone in the United States who's really poor. I mean, that, that, some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. I can go dig through a garbage can and find some food. No, I can take you to Haiti. And I can show you some places that I can't find anywhere in the U.S. that compares to Haiti. Or maybe the same in some other African nations. And so, what does it mean to be poor? Well, it all depends on your context, right? Now, I don't mean in any way... There are people who struggle with poverty in the United States. But it doesn't begin to compare to the poverty of others. Okay? So that's just one way in which I've already caused some disagreement, I can tell. So, you're seeing we all have different lenses we come from the U.S. We have different experiences. So when it comes to alcohol, for instance, you grew up in a house in which your parents either drank or they didn't. And that's a filter. You have uh, maybe a father or an uncle who is an angry alcoholic. And that's going to... That's going to give you a different lens for the way in which you look at this passage. So it's important that we recognize these filters as much as possible. Although we never will completely recognize all of them. But then that we attempt to lay them aside and see the text in its original context. And interpret, listen to this very clearly. And interpret the original meaning. How many Bible studies, I'm passionate about this. How many Bible studies have you been in? I used to be a small groups pastor over several hundreds of people. How many Bible studies have you been in in which you hear people say, Well, the meaning for me is... And you just want to grit your teeth. Because the application for you might be, but there's just one meaning. And it's not your meaning. Sorry. 
It's the meaning of the author. It's God's original intent because it's His Word. It's not your Word. So you don't get to make that up along the way. There was an intent of the author and God knows what that meaning is and the Holy Spirit wants to show us that and we should seek to find it. And then when we do, God will show us a variety of applications for each of us in the context in which we live. That's what's so cool about Scripture, how the Holy Spirit speaks to us powerfully. Now, as you consider all of that, Jesus, one thing I want to point out that's kind of cool, Jesus was involved socially in the lives of people around him. Think about that for a minute. Charles Spurgeon said that he advised pastors if they couldn't smile but felt they needed to carry themselves with a solemn look on their faces at all times, that they were probably better off in the funeral business as an undertaker. Jesus knew how to be a normal guy. Jesus hung out in social settings. Now we run past this an awful lot, but Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton Why? Because he hung out with a bunch of drunkards and gluttons. That's how you get accused. It doesn't mean that Jesus was either one. He was neither. He was neither a drunkard nor a glutton. But he knew how to hang out with people in a social context. This was a social context that involved Alcohol. Weddings usually lasted about seven days, and wine was the customary beverage. Some people believe that the wine was three parts water and one part alcohol, or one part wine. I don't know that we really know. If that's the truth, it still was potent enough that you could drink it all day and get drunk, it would seem. However, it likely was not the kind of high-gravity alcohol that we have today in in wines and high-gravity beers, and especially in whiskeys. But nevertheless... If you read the passage of Scripture, there's clearly enough alcohol in it that the message version is like, oh, wow. Most people, after they've served, we'll just use beer. I don't really know much about wine, so I'm a redneck from Alabama. We'll talk about beer. <clears throat> oh, wow. Most people at the wedding, when they've served like the microbrewery beer, and it's all ran out, and it's like the end of the week, they bring out the paps and the Bud Light. Okay, that's the message version of this text. But you've saved the good stuff for now. Some of you are uncomfortable that I even use that illustration. And it points back to the lens and experience that you bring to this text. Okay? So stick with me here. At this particular wedding, Jesus' mother expected him to do something. And I'm not sure what. I'm not sure if she's looking for something miraculous or if... I believe that Jesus was 30 years old, that he was kind of the head of the family, that she had always depended on him because Joseph, it seems, has been gone for a really long time. And she's just kind of going, Jesus, we got to fix this. Like, we, this, is, this is horrible. These people are going to be humiliated. Jesus, what are we going to do? And I love Mary in the way that she shows submissiveness to Jesus. I mean, she turns on a dime the way that John writes his story. You know, we, we oftentimes would think that, like, um, <clears throat> you know, like that she's Ray Romano's mom or something. Like, Ray, we've got to do something about this. That's not at all what Mary's like. She's very submissive. She says, okay, do whatever he asks you to do. And 
she points the servants to Jesus, which is always good advice. Now, Jesus says, hey, take these, take these water pitchers, which are like 20 to 30 gallons of water. And they're used for ritual cleansing, which wasn't taught in the Old Testament. Um, but it had become this huge emphasis amongst the Pharisees in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus' disciples were constantly, uh, they were given a hard time because you guys, you guys aren't clean. You're not washing your hands. You're not washing your feet. You're not fasting as much as we do. And so they were constantly being criticized. And uh, Jesus says, hey, go and fill these stoneware pots up. Now do the math on them. It's about 120 to 180 gallons of wine that Jesus produces in a moment. We don't know when. Doesn't say, he doesn't speak over the water and there's, he doesn't wave a magic wand. No, just in between them filling the water pots up and when they take it to the master of the ceremony, it has gone from water into wine. And we see that God gives his good gifts. God gives his good gifts in his kingdom, and it's illustrated through wine. Some people say, man, how, how could that be? Like, wine is terrible. And for some of you, <clears throat> wine is terrible because you have an experience in your life that has pointed to the fact that wine has had a terrible result, that alcohol has. A DUI killed someone in your family. You've had an abusive parent or caregiver who was an alcoholic. And you have been on the receiving end of some terrible, terrible things. Now, you may struggle to say, <clears throat> how can we take such a good gift or such a terrible thing and apply it to God? Well, it happens all the time. We constantly take God's good gifts and apply them in terrible ways. Think about anyone who's living in an adulterous relationship. That's a good gift that God's given. God gave us sex. Not our idea, God's idea. He gave us marriage. And uh, we take that and we twist it and we use it in an abusive way all the time. When you look at wine and what it seems that wine is, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, wine makes people feel good. It brings joy into their lives. Psalm 104, 15. Wine was connected to joy and making the heart glad. Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It would seem that Jesus is using wine as a sign in order to point like, this is just a little picture of what the abundant life could look like. Now, let me just throw this out really quick, and then we're going to get to the, cut to the chase. Three positions on alcohol. <clears throat> There's prohibition. Alcohol's evil, and all drinking is sin. There's abstention, alcohol is not evil, and drinking is not sinful, but all Christians should nonetheless refrain out of love of brother. Or moderation, drinking is not sinful, but conscience and circumstances should dictate an individual's freedom to partake. Many of you know that, that the elders here at Mercy Hill land on moderation. <clears throat> but the warning is this, not to be drunk. So I have one good friend, and I just think this like cuts to the chase. He says, it, we should live in moderation, but if your moderator is broken, you should stop trying to moderate. And I appreciate that. And he said, I've come to a point of believing my moderator is broken, and so I'm going to stop trying to moderate, I'm just going to stop drinking. And that's very wise. 
when you look at what Jesus is teaching here, think about the fact. Wine has to ferment over time, especially good wine, right? You don't make, you don't, you, you can get some wine in a box. I don't know much about wine. But what I've heard, the wine that's in the box, it's not quite as good usually. And it's not nearly as old. But to make really good wine, it's going to take some time. And Jesus created good wine in a moment. Just as God created the universe, fully formed, trees with seeds, fully mature, and grown animals and plants. And the Old Testament prophets would point forward. They would say that in the Messianic age, they spoke of a banquet that, that the Savior would, would come and that He would establish. And we see in this text that Jesus can transform the quality of life into something better. We see a manifestation of His glory in which Jesus is say, saying, you see the way in which I've solved the problem? You see all of this wine that's created? Well, listen to this. If you're struggling with this passage, know that the point of this sign is not about the wine. The point of this sign is to show us the greater joy that comes through Jesus. The greater happiness that we have in the abundant life. We see that in the last two verses. As belief leads to joy. Look at verse 11. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. This is a really elementary truth that I want to draw out of this passage. But we need to be careful not to run past the fact that we see Jesus here in a normal social setting meeting the basic needs of a wedding couple. Meeting the basic needs. And if we're going to mature as His disciples, we have to come to a point in our lives of realizing that there are needs in our lives that cannot be met on our own. There are resources we need in order to grow. In order to mature as followers of Christ. And these basic needs, these seemingly elementary aspects of life that we grow anxious and very worried about. Jesus is concerned with them as well. I want you to hear that. Jesus was concerned this day. He wasn't planning on stepping out. And it seems that he listened to the Father. And that the Father in some way directed him. This is when I want your ministry to begin. He was concerned. He cares. He is concerned and desires to help us to overcome the things that we're anxious about, the things that we're worried about. But we must believe, we must believe this if we're going to mature and learn to take our most basic physical and emotional needs to Him. Because when we do, when we take our most basic physical and emotional needs to Jesus, the things in our life that we say, I need help with, Jesus has the ability to make them better, to give us abundance. And I would dare say that we can find the aspects of our lives in which we are not believing the gospel by looking at our lives and examining where am I lacking joy? Where am I lacking belief in Jesus? Because when we have belief in Jesus, 
Jesus gives us abundant life. He makes the quality of our life far better. You say, how does he do that? Well, the wine is the illustration of that. He gives us joy. He gives us gladness. Because he points us to the joy that comes in his kingdom. In which his glory is manifested. And in which we walk with him. In which we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. In which we have peace in the midst of suffering. In which we have joy in difficult circumstances. Jesus, through his spirit and his presence, give us each of those. As we think about our day and the time in which we live today, a pandemic that most of us have not experienced before, I just want to remind you of how the Christians have lived in the past. Joe Stowell wrote a book called The Trouble with Jesus. And he described the following. He said there were two plagues that devastated the Roman Empire during the 2nd and 3rd centuries. The plagues killed one-fourth to one-third of the population. Think about that. If a fourth to one-third of Memphis died off. It was during these times that Christianity expanded its reach. As people discarded those that were getting sick and fled the cities... Which has happened in Memphis before, not too long ago. If you go back and read about yellow fever, it really wasn't that long ago. The Christians stood fast and nursed those who were sick. Heedless of any danger, they took charge and attended to any need. During that time, Christian writer Tertullian wrote, It is our care of the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. I pray that the Lord would give us and our people guidance on how we too can respond with that type of abundant living. In light of communion, now is the time where I would typically invite you to the Lord's table. Um, Since we're not going to do that today, I want to invite you to do something uh, different. I think in moments like this... um, There are opportunities for us to realize the context in which we really live. Because we live with a uh, culture down kind of mentality. But Jesus calls us to live with a kingdom up kind of mentality. And they're very distinctly different. So we think we're in charge. And we think we're going to beat this thing. And a few of the words of the president, I hope they're true, but they seemed a little prideful to me. A kingdom up mentality says that he is creator. And it causes us to be humble and to realize in moments like these that we're really not in charge of anything. And so I just want to invite you to join me in praying for our city, for the neighborhoods in which we live, for the streets on on which we stay, that there are elderly who are scared to get out and go to the grocery store, it might be an opportunity for us to reach out to them in a way that we haven't before and offer to pick up groceries for them. But what I want to invite you to do is join me physically doing something. If you can, I want to invite you to kneel where you are. And if you can't kneel, it's okay. Um, If you could, just to bow down low. Because there's something in these moments that as we kneel and humble ourselves... I think it gives us 
opportunity. So I know it's awkward in the pew. You can just kind of flip around. And if you can stick your feet under, turn around the opposite way and prop on the pew, however it works for you. But in this time, it gives us an opportunity to say we want to humble ourselves before God. Let's pray. Father, as we take a moment with our physical bodies to humble ourselves before you. God, we're reminded that you're God and we are not. God, we're reminded that you're a creator and that we are dust. God, we're reminded that you give us good gifts and God, that so oftentimes we distort them, we confuse them, we make them idols. God, we humble ourselves before you um, as your church family. And God, we ask that you might use the culture that's around us, the fear, the anxiety, all the news stories. God, we pray that they wouldn't produce an anxiety within us or panic attacks. But God, that the fear that we do feel in our hearts, that just as Jared mentioned earlier, God, that we would see that as a gift that points us to you, that reminds us that we're in need of you. God, that we can rely on you, that we can come under your authority. God, I pray that you would help us over these next days and weeks ahead as we don't know what will happen. But God, as we trust in you, the Savior who does know all things, Father, we pray that we would walk in obedience. God, that when you uh, touch our hearts, God, that when we have that, that feeling in our gut that's like, it's a good thing to do, and I don't want to do it, and it seems like it could be God. Father, that we would walk in obedience to you. God, I pray that we do it fully, just as these servants filled the pots up to the brim. God, that we would walk in the joy of your of obedience being under your authority. And God, that as we follow you, I pray that you would give us great joy. God, may you make your church known, not for what we're against, or God, not for the stands that we take, but for the joy that's manifested through the presence of Jesus in our very lives, lived out on our very streets. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. And God's people said, Amen.